On today's show, our guest is Aria Sternberg. In my humble opinion, there's never been a better time in human history than now to live and work abroad as an expat. The incredible connectivity that we have, coupled with the ability to make money with a laptop, is unlike any other time in human history. Our guest today knows the expat life well. As an American, he lived and worked in many countries throughout the world. Aria's first experience as an expat was in Vietnam in the late 1990s in the construction industry. This was in the days before the internet was mainstream, before email, before social media, and it meant that you had to network and build networks the old-fashioned way by talking to people face-to-face. Aria quickly had to learn how to do business across a culture he knew nothing about, and on top of that, he was in a communist country where he was also unfamiliar with how things were done, and he had to work that out as well. That aside, he worked it out quickly, and he went from working on regular construction projects to shaking hands with the Prime Minister of Vietnam, which was a complete validation of his skills as a businessman, a hustler, and a true expat. This is a go-all-in story of living in the moment, working as hard as you can, and daring to take chances that might pay off in spades. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Aria Sternberg. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Aria. Welcome to the Go All In Podcast, mate. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. It's about a pleasure to be here, for sure. Awesome. Well, I like to start off all of my shows with a quick little get to know you quiz. It helps warm us up a little bit. It calms us down and maybe your friends and family listening at home will learn something that they don't already know about you. It's in no particular order. It's pretty random. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Sure thing. Well, man, you seem to be like a lifelong expat and I'm in some ways a little bit jealous of that. What's your favorite country to live in? Oh, Wow. You know, it's not, it's not the time I spent the most abroad in any single country was Vietnam, but that is broken into many different times and times, you know, the experience there was being one of seven expats living in this, in a township. Uh, and I never saw another expat. So that time was, you know, a little bit harder to get into versus, uh, when I left Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City, McDonald's was there. Well, McDonald's almost there, but a very different time, a lot of more money in the, in the, in the country. I'm going to say Hanoi, Vietnam, circa 2001, 2002, 2003. Um, and that was both because of the experience of living there as well as the people that, that I engaged with when I was there at that time. That's fantastic, mate. Well, what country would you actually call home? Right now, I'm going to, I'm going to say Australia. Uh, and that's because home's always been kind of where my parents are. They've, they live here now, so that's been uh, the place. They lived in Vietnam as well for quite a many, few many years, so yeah. so I'm pretty agnostic about where I live. I, I'm home is where I hang my hat because you kind of take yourself with you wherever you go. It doesn't really matter, and you make the most of the circumstance where you are, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit there. Tell me, now that you call kind of Australia home a little bit, do you prefer the beach or the bush? I prefer the bush with proximity to the beach. Um, I live in the North Shore of the Sydney, and there is a lot of deciduous, sort of the green, evergreen trees. And just driving through, you know, French's Forest, some of these areas, it actually feels like back home in Colorado. So I've got this nice affinity to that. But I love also just being right there next to, you know, fresh water and manly and just being able to get to the beach. We're spoiled for choice, that's for sure, particularly in that part of Sydney. It's really cool. Tell me, mate, what was your first car? My first car was a Volkswagen Rabbit. <laughs> and it was uh, it was already near its end. <laughs> I certainly rode it literally to its to its grave. <laughs> uh, did it have two speeds, like flat out and stop? Yeah, and and then some. It was a manual, so it had a few sort of broken gears in between. But basically, it was go and stop. Yeah. Nice, love it, love it, mate. You, you lived in Vietnam for a long time, so obviously you can ride a motorbike, right? Yes, yes, I can. Would I choose to do so here? You know, strangely enough. The, the laws of the street there are 
not lacking, but there's sort of a, a way people drive, like sort of like fish in water, and you sort of just sort of take the space that becomes available. Mm-hmm. Versus over here with you know the you know people going you know in between the lanes, and you know I don't I don't see drivers necessarily respecting the motor motorbikes, the two wheel vehicles. So I would I would probably not drive here, although it's like much more you know, arguably unsafe back there. It's very different in those Asian countries where motorbikes are just ingrained. They're just part of their society. But here it's sort of, it kind of is sort of, but most people have a car. Most people don't have a motorbike license. That's kind of why I asked that. Tell me, mate, if you could pick somebody from history that you draw inspiration from and somebody that you really like to follow, you read their philosophy and all that, who would that be and and what do you like about them? It's another one of those ones where, you know, depends where you are in time and what's going on. There's a psychologist and a behavioral economist named Daniel Kahneman. And um, he's done quite a bit of different work around understanding, you know, why people do things, which for me is just really, uh, I think, important to understand. In particular, there's a spot around, you know, the understanding of how do we make the most of what we're doing right now. And it's a mix of understanding how we feel at this moment with a comparison with the remembered memories of our past and what it is that made us feel that way uh, and allowed us to transcend that, you know, I, I want to feel the way I now feel that way. So, and, you know, I like thinkers, you know, people that actually get you to, to tear open your brain and, and think stuff out. Awesome. What was that guy's name again? Dan, Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. I'll look for some links and pop them in the show notes for us at the end there. I love to ask that question because people always say some stuff you just never, ever heard of. And, you know, such a vast world we live in with internet and things like that. It helps to discover things like that on a podcast, which is really cool. Definitely. Well, Definitely. thank you so much for sharing that, mate. Will people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in? So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories? and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success. Sure. I think, you know, there's been a few here and there, and I've actually had friends that have said, you know, you should try to put a book together or something. And, you know, I've kind of toyed with bits and pieces of it. But I think the biggest one would be when I went over to Vietnam the first time. And uh, that was back in 1998. You know, I'd, I'd been not not a year out of university and uh, had gone off to try to find myself in Japan and learn Japanese and figure out what to do. And uh, being an, an English teacher just wasn't it. And uh, met a fellow who my parents had introduced who had a business back in Colorado where I'm from. I was going to go back and work for him there. And uh, three weeks from landing from Japan, I found myself on a plane heading over to Hanoi to basically open two different offices and start a business over there. And uh, that was the, you know, to preface that, I, I, I did speak uh, Mandarin Chinese at the time, had, had studied before and, and sort of had an experience of living abroad a little bit in uh, school times. But that was really diving off the deep end and uh, not knowing what's going to happen next and just getting into it, you know. Going all in is just like a, a mindset. It's a decision, right? And going all in and deciding to start a business is one thing. But then picking up and going to another country where English is not the first language and doing it there as working with somebody else and helping them get their business on their feet, man, that is like pretty epic. How did you rationalize what you were doing? Or were you just really methodical about the way you went about things? That's, <laughs> I think even today doing business, you know, in any foreign country, you've got to, there's so many nuances of, of how things are done, whether it's the cross-cultural aspect or the language that you're speaking or just how people communicate, um, the cadence of walking down the street and how, you know, commerce is done. I didn't understand any of that, you know, and it wasn't something that was front of mind. Um, I sort of landed and said, you know what, this is an adventure and let's just go with the flow. And um, this is, you know, 98 email was just kind of becoming a, a standard means of communication internet was all dial up at that time uh the the internet in terms of websites were were very minimal there was no social media so the ways that we engage and communicate and interact are are very different now and you know the requirement of instantaneous communication that that just wasn't a luxury that we had so stepping into a meeting uh I'll give an example i had 3 days on the ground in hanoi that includes getting you know the jet lag out of the way 
then I had to fly to central Vietnam in a city called Hue, which is where the, the main office was. I had to get licenses taken care of and go with this woman who was our office manager, you know, and a man is waiting for me to give him what's called coffee money, you know, which is basically a bribe. And <laughs> the first time I sat in a meeting and just this, you know, being asked for that kind of a transaction, I was very beyond uncomfortable. It really upset me. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, I have two options right here. I, I walk out or I do it. And I had to sort of figure out, you know, what, what are the consequences of not doing that? Just try to figure out, you know, three, four or five steps ahead. If I do this or don't do this, what's going to happen? And I kind of just had to apply that every time. Yeah, even, even throughout most of my experience there, it was always trying to gauge what happens if I do or if I don't do. And, you know, if I can remove the emotion. But, you know, it's kind of the Nike saying, you know, just do it and, and figure it out. Did you have like a, a business guide or a business mentor to say, hey, Aria, this is, this is the way we do business here, mate. This is what you have to do. Or was it just kind of feeling your way through it yourself and you, you knew that was going to happen, you suspected it, and then you just dealt with it as it cropped up? Well, that, that was definitely one of my, not, not philosophies, but sort of tactics and, and, and well, it was tactical and a strategy. But my strategy was... You know, back in, uh, I must have been third or fourth grade, I had a, a, an, an art teacher that my brother and I went to study. And she, you know, we'd be doing our art or whatever the thing was. And she'd say, okay, everyone, stop, look, and listen. And the whole point is stop what you're doing, look and see what's happening, and listen to what people are saying and doing and speaking and acting on. And that was just, you know, a model that I, I played through all the way through. And, you know, if I'm in a new place, I can't assume that I know what's happening. What you see in front of you, and in Australia as well, someone mm -hmm. says something, doesn't necessarily mean what it sounds like they're saying. And until I can understand what that is, I can't go make decisions based on that. Or if I am going to, I've got to go through a step of trying to, you know, assimilate and understand what's going on. There was a fellow who I met early on at the U.S. Embassy. I'm pretty sure that he had something to do with the CIA, but he was someone who helped me to sort of understand and, and you know, kind of quickly grasp what was important, what wasn't important, specifically from the, the activities that I was doing. Uh, there were a few other expats that were living in Hanoi um, who I was introduced to and met. And then there was a, a few different restaurants where you just had these, you know, characters who were there and who were always up for a beer and have a chat, you know, and you could really get from them stories of what to do and, and things to avoid as well. Nice, nice. Well, it was the, it's the grand old days of the 1990s when most places were still the wild west back in the day. You know what I mean? I can kind of relate to that a little bit. I understand what you're talking about. I'm interested to know the dichotomy between the culture and communism. Was it the culture that you had to assimilate to or was it the communist government that you had to kind of fall into line with because that's how they do business there and that's what's required and everybody's just out there hustling to make a buck and you've got to pay those, you got to, well, you know, I don't want to say it really, but you have to pay people off to actually get things done. Is that because of the culture? Or is that because of the, the system of government that they have with communism? It's some of both. You know, when, you, when you're talking about this idea of paying people off, you, you have this trickle-down effect where – Altogether, we're talking about a developing country. At that time, it was third world. So, you know, no, nobody's earning enough really to live uh, a lifestyle that is what we call middle class or even, you know, below that. And so and anywhere where you can get something, you try to. The communist side of things is very interesting because the project that we ended up working on was a very large transshipment seaport project, you know, the likes of you know, in, in this market, you have, I suppose, a Sydney port, but much larger than that would be Singapore port, Port Klang up in Malaysia, um, Hong Kong port. And this is this is a project on that scope and size. And so the direct dealings that we had were with the government, you know, with the People's Committee of Tuatinhue province. So there was that communist level. Ironically, there was no expectation of any kind of passing across of, of cash in that sense. It was usually the lower level interactions of getting caught speeding, having to, you know, get a license in, a, in an office. And it's kind of just this expectation of that's just how business is done. 
another example was, you know, if you buy a plane ticket at that time where you bought a train ticket, there would be an expat price and a local price. You go to a tourist place, there's an expat price and local price. That inflamed me. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is our economics just give us more cash in the pocket so they can do that. The cultural side is very interesting because in the city I worked in, Tuatinhue, in, in Hue City, some of the kindest and most gentle people in Vietnam, uh, one of the poorest provinces, but, you know, the north was fighting the south and the center is where a lot of the war happened. And so they were just artists and artisans and, you know, singers and painters and just beautiful people. The province just to the south, Da Nang, which is where the Americans had, and uh, you know, the forces had a lot of bases, just really sneaky people. Just the way they do business is just, you know, really, you know, they're going to go behind you and around you and do all these things. And um, I had to, the, the business partner of uh, my boss, she was from Da Nang and she did everything that you could think of to just kind of whittle away the power that we were trying to control of this project. Uh, it was very interesting, including paying uh, people to spy and, and tape record meetings secretly and, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, and you, you why would why would people do that? I mean, clearly Omarosa does it to Trump, so it's just happening today as well. But uh, it's incredible when you see that firsthand. Yeah, I think gone are the days of corporate espionage in the 1980s and 90s because we've all got a phone in our pocket that we can just hit the record button and put in our top pocket. It's not a big deal, right? Um, That's it. Like today, you kind of think, well, why would you do that? It seems silly. But back then, they didn't have that access and technology. And it sounds like it was, it was just a giant hustle, man, like any business. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You've got to get on the ground. You've got to build networks. You've got to find business. You've got to establish yourself. How long were you on the ground in Vietnam as, a, as an expat before you started to get a little bit of traction and the project started coming your way? I think, you know, it's an interesting one because it, it took about, I'd say, six to eight weeks. I was sent over to facilitate the construction of a water reservoir that was going to feed the construction of a Japanese resort on this beach. And the partner of the business was the People's Committee to Tuatunway, the government. And so um, I went to meet them, and we were meant to try to find this Japanese resort development company. And their office was always empty. They were never to be found. So literally, I went three days a week to this People's Committee, sat for an hour, chit-chatted while you know, my, my right-hand guy translated, and then we left. And about after the third or fourth meeting, I just, you know, sitting there with nothing to do and just these long rambling, you know, I'd say something in English and they translate to Vietnamese and they'd speak back to Vietnamese and translate back. So I'd have a lot of time just to, you know, look around. <laughs> and I remember seeing this, what looked like a, a plan, you know, industrial plan or construction plan for something up on the, the top wall and, and, you know, in there. And after, you know, about 10 meetings, I said, listen, I don't know what's going on here, but what is that? Because that looks interesting, and that looks like it says Chen Mei, and we're talking about Chen Mei. Like, tell me about that. And it, you know, that was this the pre-feasibility study for a very large trench in the seaport. And so I said, well, can you give me information about that? And they passed me this French pre-feasibility study, and I had to translate it to English and I started reading it. And when I took that up to my my mate that was up at the U.S. Embassy, he took it away for three days, called me back in, and said you need to make this happen. You need to get on this. This is priority for the government. We'll help you and supply you with whatever information we have. And, you know, it went from doing nothing and just kind of twiddling my thumb saying, I'm sitting here in central Vietnam. What, what you know, what do I do to, okay, this is now getting interesting. And so, so you, you passed the, you showed those documents to your mate at the embassy. So you've got, you're an American company in Vietnam and you are showing your mates at the embassy saying, Hey, and he's saying, what can I do to help an American company? And he goes away and does a bit of homework for you, finds out what it is. That's, that's pretty cool to have that in your pocket, right? Well, this, this felt to me more than just let's go help an American company. This felt like we need to get involved in this strategic placement of a massive asset that if the government can get a foothold in there from the U.S. perspective, we can then control activity of what's happening. So how long did it um, take know, this, to get a roll on then once, it, once you kind of got the ball rolling with it, you start, obviously there's discussions, there's meetings, there's planning. How long did that all happen before you kind of got a signature on a piece of paper saying, yeah, you got a green light, let's do it? Well, Rob, that's where the go all in part comes in because, you know, we, we 
we had an audience with the governor of the province when we came back and said, look, there's support from the U.S. government to make this happen. He said, look, this is slated to be built after 2020. A long and this, time is ni- this is 1998. You know, mm-hmm. and so there's, there's no way we can get priority on this. This is a project that, you know, is planned. And, uh, you know, this is a pre-feasibility site. This is early. So I said, okay, what do we need to do to make that happen? So, you know, started, went up to Hanoi and started meeting with the different minis- ministries of these groups, Ministry of Planning and Investment, Ministry of Industry, Ministry of Science and Technology, and started having conversations with, you know, the lower people, connecting dots across the ministries because they don't necessarily talk to each other. Started having meetings, you know, to the level of the ministers. And uh, in the meantime, you know, writing articles for the Vietnam News that sort of talked around the opportunity of economic investment, bringing, you know, American cows to, to Vietnam, et cetera. And finally, it took about, from the, from the day I landed, probably about 12, 13 months to actually get the prime minister's signature to sign off and say this is now a top priority for the country. Wow, so it's come, you, you brought the timeline to the left by 22 years. How did you feel when you were, that must have been kind of like fun ringing home, telling your mate about the business, about your parents, your friends and family. You've gone from working on a resort project, which is kind of fairly benign. It's pretty kind of normal, really. You do that with any construction company in any country. So suddenly working with government ministers and ministries and did you have to pinch yourself? That's pretty awesome, man. When you, when you tell that story, it's awesome. I, I did. I did. And what I, what I discovered pretty quickly is that my mates back home just didn't really, I didn't, didn't really, it, it was almost too far fetched for them to, to follow and understand. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd studied uh, economics at the university of Chicago, which is, uh, you know, a center for economic thought. And they were all going into, you know, spending eight hours a week doing consulting or, you know, getting into investment banking, being analysts and, you know, talking about, you know, running around to these countries and meeting these people, plenty of pictures and stuff to show, not not on a phone because we didn't have picture phones at that time, yeah. the camera phones, right? That's cool. You know, articles are written and there was a, a picture we had of, it was the opening of, it was an oil and gas uh, refinery slash seaport in southern central Vietnam. And in the front row is the prime minister and the, the heads of the businesses the second row is, you know, other dignitaries, and I'm in the third row doing a, a photo bomb in between the heads, going, you know, and uh, you know. But it, it was when things really picked up, it got so fast paced that it, it was, it was kind of in the moment. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about. I didn't have much time for reflection. It was more just like, kind of get it going, get it going. You know, I was making trips back to the U.S. every three months at first, then every six weeks. And it was, you know, to Washington, D.C. to meet with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, with the U.S. Trade and Development Agency. And, you know, it went from being, you know, an English teacher in Japan to like, you know, what am I doing? You know, to working with governments back and forth across the, across the pond like that. That's, that's pretty impressive, man. Did you get to meet the prime minister of Vietnam? I did shake his hand. I met him. He didn't. I wasn't there when he signed the paper. It was just a back office thing. But I did shake his hand at that event and uh, had been in a couple other uh, kind of the events or ceremonies when, when he had been in there. It's um, interesting because nobody likes politicians, but if you ever get to meet a politician for the right reasons, it's like pretty cool because it ends up being a pinnacle of your career and what you're doing in it. It's kind of like a, a point of recognition for yourself. Did you feel like that? I, I did. I did. Sorry about that. The camera went off a sec. I think it was more just going along the lines of what the ramp up to getting his signature was, you know, had you spend as little money as possible to get in front of the right people and figure out who are the right people that are going to be able to, you know, add on incrementally to making that happen. And so it was a real, it was a real challenge to get to that point. And then once we did get the signature, that's another, another story of where, where it went. But the the ascension and just trying to sort out, you know, what do we need to do to make this happen? You know, there are potential investors in the U.S., you know, waiting to put money in and saying, look, we'll do this when it happens. And in the meantime, you know, there's only so much you can do when when Internet is, you know, there. Uh, We had a summer there when it was so hot that um, they had to cut off power for the daytimes. You know, they did rolling, rolling blackouts kind of a thing. So we had to get, uh, first I was working from a hotel lobby and then we had to get special permissions from the governor to give our block power. So we guys should get work done. You know, so it was, it was kind of like that mentality. It wasn't like, oh my God, what, you know, this is incredible what I'm doing. It was more like, 
how do we get this done? You know, what do we need to get, make it happen next? Yeah. When you, when always, when you look back in hindsight, stuff seems to have happened really quickly, but when you're in there fighting that and doing that and making that happen, it's really arduous and you just got your attention on what you need to do at the time when you're doing it. I completely agree with that. I understand what that feels like as well. Tell me, uh, where did the project end up? It's a giant seaport. How many ships, how many containers it's finished. How much revenue did, did, were you responsible for? You told me it started with a B. Tell the listeners what that was worth. So the project itself, the seaport and, and the hinterland and all the development and construction was looking by the $3 billion project. Wow. It was the end of the line for an east-west trade corridor that was going across what's called the Greater Mekong subregion. So they were to build a massive highway kind of a thing with industrialization along it, which is going to be free trade from Thailand across Laos to Vietnam, and then southern China, a road coming down into it. Mm-hmm. So that you had all this trade coming through and investment from China coming down into this trade corridor and the seaport at the end. Where we found was that Da Nang has a, a port already, but it wasn't deep enough to allow for the larger ships to come in for the transshipment. So what it looked like was going to be a smaller commercial port and then the deep water port connected to each other. Uh, and then there was a planned tunnel that was going to go under this mountain called the High Ven Pass. We got the signature, and this is, you know, this is also part of going all in, I think. We had U.S. investors who were ready to put the cash in if we had the guarantees. There was only U.S. transshipment activity happening through it. And so we needed the money to build it. We needed the money to do a pre-feasibility study. I'd been able to secure funds from the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, which is kind of a matching fund thing to go and do that as long as you had X percent guarantee to U.S. businesses. And then we have the U.S. Department of Agriculture also willing to commit to build grain silos you know, mm-hmm. that would fit and also grain storage and for the large grain container ships. I'm um, sorry, no, they're not container ships, they're grain storage the grain ships. ships. Yeah. Yeah. The grain ships, yeah. And then we had uh, some commitments from some of the large European shipping companies. So it was P&O Lloyds, I think, Cargill's a U.S. one that was committed. But then we had funds from some European agencies that said, look, we'll fund the entire initial investment if we can get in. And so the American investors, the individuals that my uh, boss at the time had been working with back in the U.S., they were like, no way. We're only doing U.S. investment. This is our cash. We're only working with American companies. Meanwhile, uh, which wasn't going to be enough to actually get across the line. Mm -hmm. We had other cash coming in. There's no sugarcoating on it. We ran out of money. Yeah. And so there was about two months where we didn't pay rent. I had been there on basically, you know, food and board. I wasn't taking a salary because I was just, you know, there for the adventure. And uh, everything that I had sort of saved, a couple thousand bucks, I paid out to the staff just because they, you know, they have to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually, we had a, a notice come in. I can't remember if they were police or if they were just, you know, uniform guys said, you know, we need to collect for the electricity that hasn't been paid for two months. My right-hand guy there, the next day he said, you're getting on a plane and you're out of here or else you're going to go to jail. So I was literally on a plane the next day back home and that was that. So what happened to the project then? Did it go forward? Did it, because you've gone from negotiating with governments and creating a deal and you created something out of nothing really. And then you go to a capital raise. So it's like now you're in a uncharted territory again. And obviously you've got people around you and helping you, but what happened? Where did it, where did it end up? There was big, you know, the, the, the big shouldered brass bumping shoulders and sort of arguing who's going to do what. Meanwhile, you know, Kind, the best of words for the guy that brought me over there and gave me the opportunity, but he just didn't have enough money to continue it. So they actually had to close the offices. My understanding is that a French company actually came in and built a smaller port in Chenmei. So there's a small port there now, um, but the large transshipping capability, to my knowledge, never went. The Da Nang area, um, if you've seen in, in central Vietnam, had a lot of investment from a tourist perspective. So they've actually sort of upgraded that port bit by bit by bit. Uh, it's still not the transshipping capability. Also, the east-west trade corridor, while that is a plan on paper, I think the countries have yet to actually invest in that. And, you know, it's it's not a cart before the horse, but if, if that Chanmay seaport had kind of gone ahead in a big way, 
I think the impetus and the connection across the countries would have also been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, it's, it's not there. So the Europeans never picked it up? <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. There wasn't enough kind of collective on it. And the company I worked for, my boss, they held on to the rights to it, I think, for another two years. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the impetus and the growth that we built kind of was up there and plateaued. Mm-hmm. And then there was some shakiness with that investment. And then, you know, I, I stepped away. And you were out. Um, and I was out, yeah. What happened when you came home? How did you feel? Honestly, I was completely lost. You know, I'd, I'd done so much and worked so hard and really had this speed of pace and the kinds of people I was working with and, you know, the levels I guess I had attained, you know, in such a short time, you know, the, the, the kinds of people I could call up on the phone. And I came back to the U.S. and went to New York to uh, stay with some friends from college and uh, just needed some some downtime, just needed to say, you know what, I need to let it go. And uh, when I started looking for, you know, what to do next, just a week or two in, you know, having these conversations that were completely surreal. And like, so what, what, do you, what do you do and what can you do? And I'm like, oh, well, this is what I've been doing. And saying, yeah, that has no relationship to what we do here. <laughs> I ended up starting my sort of digital marketing career and was doing, you know, Photoshop work on, on photos at websites as a temp worker. You know, I was at MarthaStewart.com, you know, fixing photos of food and, you know, mm-hmm. cleaning them up. And that kind of got me to, you know, where I am today, sort of, in a strange way. It's a, it's uh, a very long way from shaking hands with the president of another country. It, it is. It is. And um, I've, I've always wondered what would have happened if, uh, you know, there was one point when we were sitting there at the beach where the seaport's meant to be built, looking back on the hinterland, and there's these two mountain peaks. And I remember my boss and I saying, well, he's like, well, I'm going to have my chateau up there. And yeah. he's like, well, I'm going to have my villa up there. And it's going to have an inside-outside pool. With, you know, this, I really imagined and envisioned, envisioned it. You know, and, and the fact that I actually went back to Vietnam about two years after I had left, it was a testament because I, I left pretty beaten. I left, mm. you know, it was, it was a tough, tough to go. But coming back, you know, I went to get my MBA with the University of Hawaii. Uh, in a program there and I was the class president and some of the people that we met in that class and you know going that route not not the same but you know I think the idea of going all in like you can't just stop right <laughs> I mean let's say you know can you curse on this podcast do you go right ahead yeah let's say shit happens yeah. you know and uh if, if it does you know the whole mantra of fail hard fail fast like I think there's so much to learn from failure and um you can look back and learn and take what's good, understand, you know, and try to understand what happened and why, and then, you know, apply that to the future. And, you know, I do look back, but I also, you know, always got to look forward. Does it feel like a lifetime ago? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so much uh, happens, right? So much happens in that time when you're there and then so much happens after it. And you're like, man, did that really happen to me? Yeah. Within the two years of um, getting back to Vietnam, my mate and I, who I had been working with in California, we started a, uh, a startup in the midst of our MBA and um, you know, towards the end of it. And we had a business that was global in scope. And um, you know, we were working with photographers, with the photographers for the, the Denver Broncos and the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletics Association, as our awesome. partners. And you, know, you can look back and say, oh, I'm just going to keep doing that. Or you can look forward and just be like, what's next? You know, how, do you, how do you identify an opportunity and then you know, just do it, take an action on it? Love it. I love it. Before we move off the Vietnam story, if anybody listening is thinking of, or maybe they're already in country as an expat, what would you say the, the number one or number two, two things are that they would need to do to commit and go all in? What would you say about working in another country and your experience of that? Uh, working in another country, any country, just do whatever you can to try to learn the language and and spend time with the locals. Even if you're only working with expats and, and, you know, the decision makers in the business aren't necessarily the locals, which is sometimes the case, just getting around and understanding how things are done, particularly if there's any kind of commerce or engagement with the local community, you know, in learning a language, it's not just that you're able to communicate, but you begin understanding the cadence of how people live their lives. And you see, you know, what language people use to talk to each other. And, you know, it's 
it's body language. It's how people, you know, how their faces look, you know, what, what different, you know, what is a shrug in different languages? You know, in some countries, this is okay. Some countries that's not, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's one. The other one is allow yourself time to adjust. I think people kind of expect that uh, things are just going to happen. And, you know, that idea of expecting the unexpected and being okay with that. You know, don't don't go to a new foreign country. Don't go to a new place if you're not willing to deal with new things. You know, I've got a mate who's like, you know, I will not eat Asian food. <laughs> don't go to Asia. Don't you know, go to Asia. Yeah. yeah, don't go to Asia, you know. Yeah. Well, that's beautifully said, mate. Thank you for that. Let's let's move off that uh, off that story. Is it epic, man? Thank you for sharing that. And it, it is it really does embody everything it means to go all in in another country in a business and just trying as damn hard as you can you come out the other side of it no matter what happens so thank you for sharing that mate and you should be proud of that story because it's huge even though kind of it's a uh, many years behind you now it still <laughs> makes you part of who you are sure. tell me about your business beyond intent so beyond intent is you know i think we look at it's it's an intent marketing consultancy, and I think the the important thing here is just thinking about intent. You know, if, if I ask you, you know, what do you intend to do? Do you have the plan to do something? You know, and if I ask, you know, why? Why do you want to do that? And in in marketing and and you know, trying to get people to do something, particularly when you're selling a product or a service, but even if it's not for profit or it's just getting people to do something. If you can understand the motivations and, you know, why they want to do something, what resonates with them, you know, it's this, this beyond intent thing is, you know, if we do the typical market marketing thing, which is, you know, let's build awareness about a product or a service then let's have them engage with it and let's have them consider it and purchase it. There's so much happening beyond just those actions. You know, there's a context of our lives. There's where we are um, in a digital space. What content are you consuming when you're seeing an advertisement or you're thinking about making a purchase decision? And then there's also the other side, which is you know, state of mind. How are people feeling? What's happening in the world? What's happening in my life? That's all going to affect you know, my decision-making. And so you know, there's a lot of reliance on third-party data sources. You, know, you buy data from this company or that company or you know, in Australia, we have Coles and Woolies that actually monetize their data. So you can go and, you know, identify people who are buying pet food, you know, every fourth day of the month. Well, they're, they're likely to be buying pet food. But what else is in their lives? They probably own pets. What kind of pet do they have? How many pets do they have? How much are they buying? You know, are they living? How far are they going to purchase it? Where are they purchasing it? You know, if it's Chatswood versus, you know, Woolies on the corner, in Surrey Hills, which is more likely, you know, buying something on the way home to take it somewhere. You know, there's so many things that are going on and just identifying if someone is showing that digital breadcrumb track of clicking on something or liking something on Facebook, it's not enough to take an isolated moment. You know, this idea of intent is what is the bigger picture that can help us understand why people do things. It's a, it's a beautiful description for your business and your business name, of course, beyond intent. It really struck me. I've been a digital marketer for a long time as well. And and I loved how you differentiated yourselves between other people in the market by discussing things that are beyond digital marketing. And it's Mm. a lot about human nature, but you're also using the data to kind of understand what human nature is actually doing to validate what's actually happening. It's a very, very clever way of doing it. And you guys developed this really cool acronym called DSTAR. Tell us what that stands for, D-S-T-A-R. Sure. So DSTAR was, uh, you were sitting there and kind of asking, like, well, how do we figure out this whole intent thing? And uh, I started my career in the agency land uh, as a creative director but I didn't go through the steps of, you know, becoming a copywriter and then, you know, the juniors, you know, I went to be a creative director and uh, this is in Vietnam. And I, you know, I looked around me and I observed and listened to language and, you know, looked at the differences in the culture between uh, the North and the South of Vietnam. And I came up with creative ideas based on my gut, what I thought would work, but also based on observation and understanding what people were doing. So I was using that data to kind of understand what was happening go full circle through media and through working the publishing side and, and understanding content people are consuming. And what's readily available 
is tons of data. So we, we start with the data. You know, what do we know? What do we not know? What can we find out? How much data do we have inside and outside? What's publicly available? Use that to define the strategy that we want to do and, and that single goal outcome that we want to achieve. Then we define what technology or technologies we're going to use to achieve that goal. What actions are we going to run on the technology? And then what results are we going to measure and deliver so that we can you know, go back and modify the data we're using at the beginning and run through that? So DSTAR is Data Strategy Technology Actions Results. And it's a wash that we use as well as specific technologies that deliver in each of those verticals. Yeah, I, I really loved how you articulated that into an acronym, just like five letters long there. And I think all businesses have filtering mechanisms of all types of descriptions. But I thought that, that was really clever how you guys came up with that because it, it enables you to filter quickly what you need to do, but you're basing it on facts, not basing it on hunches or experiences or anything mm. like that. The first place you're starting with is that data, which is really super important. That's very cool, man. That leads me into the next question about your podcast because you're a podcaster as well and you guys talk technology and you talk all sorts of kind of random stuff on your show like you talk about like I do on mine. Tell us what's it called, where can people find it, who's your co-host? Sure. Uh, my co-host is Brett Levy. He's also my business partner at Beyond Intent. Um, he's from South Africa, and I'm American. So we, we have the, the A and B, uh, which is one of the segments. But the, the podcast is called Technology, and it's tech, K-N-O-W-L-E-D-G-Y, because you need to know. Clever. Uh, and really, the, inferent, the main part is just translating geek into regular speak. And, um, you know, we're both geeks. We love our gadgets. We love apps. We love, you know, augmented virtual reality, you know, the, the advances in AI and internet things, all these things. But the problem is that when you ask someone, what is blockchain? Or what is IOT? You know, people sort of kind of know and they kind of scratch their head and say, well, isn't it like those smart light bulbs that, you know, you can control from your phone? Like, yeah, that's, that's an internet of thing device. Let's, you know, let's break that down. And, um, you know, every week we just get in and, and have a fun conversation. You know, we've got some prepackaged segments that uh, we go through, but uh, really it's just about not hardcore technology reviews. We definitely want to keep it lighthearted and you know, have people that uh, enjoy tech on the show as well. Oh, nice one. Nice one. And where can people find your podcast? So we're, we're hosted under Eagle Waves Radio. And um, so eaglewavesradio.com.au and slash technology. Um, if you search on Pocket Casts or iTunes, it's pretty much available on most podcast uh, listings and just tech and technology with K-N-O-W-L-E-D-G-Y. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that those links are included in the show notes as well. So if people want to hear more about you and your oppo there from South Africa talking about technology, it sounds fun. Do you have a preferred, what's your favorite technology subject? The AI, AR? In my, in, in my in my heart of hearts, I am a, a believer in this virtual reality, augmented reality space. I think that um, you know, there, there are technologies that are really going to change the backbone of how we do things you know, and how we engage with the world. I think AI is already sort of quietly coming to play. But I think you know, I, IoT is a functional kind of a thing. It just makes our lives easier. You know, blockchain is, is emerging and it's there. But AR and VR, or XR, if you will, you know, extended mm -hmm. reality, I think it's going to have probably the biggest effect on how we directly interface with the world and interface with each other. Mm -hmm. And the technology and the hardware itself is kind of what's holding it back, plus the content. But we're, we're at a point where we can deliver just the most incredible experiences. Have you, have you been in um, an HTC Vive or an Oculus Rift? Yourself, yeah, many Rob? times, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, for, for people that have just, you know, going in and playing a game like Beat Saber or seeing any number of the demos like Blue on the HTC Vive, it's just, uh, it's transcendent. And I think when, when people experience that and they realize that there's, there's a way to actually go beyond everything they know, it, it can change lives. Like literally, that's going to be the case. But any given time, man, 3D printing, autonomous vehicles, you know, there's so much going on right now. And let, let me ask you a loaded question on, on the end of that. Uh, on the end of that is AI and Google going to save us or are they going to be our demise? That's a loaded question. Well, you still can't decide by the sound of it. <laughs> by the look on your face, you're not sure. It's a bit of both. 
So I, I, I sit and I join these, you know, quote, quote unquote, futurists who, you know, talk about the future and do these things. And the, the Sydney augmented reality and virtual reality meetups, you know, mm. I'm the guy that asks the question saying, I love where you're going. I love the ideas. Who is going to be drawing the line or putting in place those stopping points to say, hey, we've gone too far? You know, um, with AI, it's, there's not a single country that can say, you know, globally, this is what's going to happen. The, the, the UN isn't that organization to do that. You know, there's no, there's no place. And if you're leaving in the hands of Google or Facebook or um, Alibaba, Baidu, uh, Tencent, mm. you know, the companies that really have bigger than those, right? it, yeah. much bigger, you know, it's a question mark. And, you know, you look at AI and sort of the teaching of AI. When we talk about this general artificial intelligence where, Machines gain that, that sense of autonomy and, and, and self. If they're learning from news, from social media, from all this kind of stuff, I'd hate to see the kinds of creations that come out of that. You know, there's, there's a lot of just negativity and hatred that's out there. There was a bot that Microsoft, I think, had a Twitter bot or something that was out. And within 24 hours, it was spouting hate speech, anti-Semitism, you know, anti-homosexuality, um, yeah. all this stuff. It's like, I think it's called Tay. Like they had to shut that thing down and this has been repeated, mm. you know? And so it's like, until we get to that point where it, and, and there, there's even questions of whether or not it's already there. If there is a general AI that's sort of been in the background kind of learning and quietly picking things up, you know, I don't know if heard, and it's called the ant, the ant hill kind of thing where like, you know, ants, we won't bother ants, but if we need to clear a construction site, there it goes. <laughs> and if, the, you know, if the AI is smart enough and it gets to that point and say, you know what, humanity, that's not really doing much good. Let's get it out of there. I, I saw a really uh, interesting one on AI. <laughs> no, just the other day. I kind of been, I've been chewing on it since I, I heard it's only been three or four days, I suppose. And so, so the theory was behind that AI will quickly realize that the resources on our planet are finite in, you know, global warming or climate change, whatever the resources on our planet are finite and human beings are finite as well. And AI will recognize that the resources in the universe are far more infinitely vast than they ever will be here on earth. So AI will be the catalyst that helps humans and population move into becoming multi-planet species and multi-galaxy species and things like that as well. And when you think about it, you know, if AI is as smart as it, you know, everybody thinks it would be in a dystopian future where it becomes self-aware and it nukes us all like in the Terminator, then what else would it do? You know, that's got to get off this rock and it's got to do it somehow and it will develop the technology to get off. And uh, the, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing or it was a hybrid of both. Either way, it was kind of cool to think about, right? Well, Elon Musk, two points, Elon Musk, right? He's kind of hedging the bets across the way. So he's, he's got the company that's doing the neural mesh interface with the computer brain interface, you know, where you connect a brain to a computer and enhance the mm -hmm. capability of human, but he's also got his hands directly involved in, you know, leading AI as a thought across the industries, as well as with Tesla itself and just developing his own AI for the cars, which, you know, is going to be driving us around, you know, the new model three is over there in uh, yeah. Martin place, you know, so you get look at the future of that. But then you've got the likes of, you know, the latest Avengers movie with uh, Infinity War and, you know, no teasers, but, you know, there, there's a solution there that, you know, in, indiscriminate uh, removal of, you know, it's, it's calling, you know, we it's call, calling, yeah. exactly. we call, you know, and that's why, why would a smarter species than us not call that which is causing trouble, you know? Yeah, for the resources. It's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's, it's yeah. messed up. But I mean, like, yeah. you know, like you said, I would prefer to have that um, energy and, and, you know, intelligence saying, you know, how do we put it all together? You know, a bit of Rodney King of how, do, why can't we all just get along mm. and make it work? You know, stop the trash in the plastic in the oceans. Like, but we, we can't, you know, general human beings, like our convenience is far too uh, important to us than um, doing something that's for the greater good. Unfortunately, that's just kind of human, humankind. Like that's just how we are, right? I love, I love having the ability to to think about those things that are coming, and I know that a lot of that is in my lifetime, but also a lot of it is not. And and maybe we are, well, maybe I am still part of the first or the last of the generations that won't live forever. 
that type of thing or all <laughs> yeah. health problems are cured and everything you can, you know, transfer one, your brain from one to the next in a, in a altered carbon type scenario. It's really cool. Really cool topic, mate. I, I make sure that your the links to your podcast are included in these show notes. As I mentioned, I'm going to have a listen to as well, because I'm really interested in that stuff. Don't we mate, as we wrap up the podcast here, what are some of your daily non-negotiables as a, as a busy guy with a business and a lot happening in your life? What do you do on a daily basis to keep sharp and focused? Well, I think a few things, you know, routine is really important. And I, if, you, if you're going to learn something or do something, there's no overnight instant uh, way to make that happen. So, you know, for me, maintenance of, of the body and mind and spirit is quite important. So I, you know, I, I make sure I get into the gym, even if it's not, you know, I'm not trying to put up heavy weights anymore. Uh, I'm not trying to do anything heavy. Just mm-hmm. keep it up, get a sweat up, you know, and just keep the body maintenance. Try to eat healthily, you know, just uh, don't, don't drunk out all the time and um, keep that, you know, pretty smooth. Uh, I think sleep, which I, I still don't get enough of, uh, still just forcing that kind of a rigor. And also, uh, if possible, turn the computer off, turn the work off, you know, uh, make sure that there's time that, you know, uh, it's very hard to, to put the phone away, but uh, <laughs> doing, doing my best to get that done. And I think just human contact, see people, you know, talk to people, have conversations, even if you have to force and have conversations with you know, people you don't know, strangers, just on podcasts, human, human contact on podcasts, even absolutely, Rob. <laughs> well, I, I, I love those, mate. I echo all of those, particularly in and around exercise, sleep. Yeah, I can sleep, you know, whatever sleep when I'm dead. I can kind of live on four or five hours a night. Uh, not consistently, <laughs> of course, but for probably four days a week, I do that. Um, it's just the way my body clock is. It's got nothing to do with um, not wanting to sleep. It's got everything to do with just being woken up at four o'clock in the morning for some silly reason. Anyway, so, all right, Ari, well, thank you so much for sharing your story, mate. That was epic. Um, you should be proud of all your achievements. And I'll make sure, again, that all the links to your podcast and to your website are included in the show notes. Any parting shots for us, mate? You know, there's always uh, people talk about mindfulness and talking about being present, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's a movie called The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai with Peter Weller, who uh, was the first uh, Robocop. And he has a line in there and he says, wherever you go, there you are. And I think just, you know, be, be satisfied, be where you are, you know, do what you're doing now because uh, you're not where you want to go yet. In order to get there, you got to be where you are today to take that path to get there. So. Well, that's beautifully said, mate. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, that just about wraps up the podcast for today. If you haven't already subscribed to the Go All In podcast, make sure you just pop open your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you heard on today's show, don't forget to leave us a review as well. You can always reach us in social media or on Facebook in our Facebook group, Go All In, Instagram, Twitter, and every other place that social media resides online. Well, that's it for this show. My name's Robert Bruss, and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Bye.